Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Kujo Virgil, and I'm very excited for our guest today. Our guest is Lee Johnson. Now, Lee is the co-founder and vice president of Value Investment Partners. And since beginning his investment journey in 2005, Lee is responsible for implementing strategic methods to grow his company. And also, he helps his investment partners grow their wealth using various alternative investment strategies, which allow them to leverage both money and time. And so now as an active and passive investor, Lee has a current portfolio that spans multiple markets across the country with over 2,800 units valued at over $334 million. Lee, thank you so much for being on the show. Good to see you again, Yannick. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Can't complain. You know, we love it as real estate professionals where interest rates are just rising every single day, it seems like. So, you know, it's a great time to be a real estate investor. And one of the reasons why I believe it's so good to be a real estate investor is because you need to use leverage in order to beat inflation. And I was just on a call with a mentee of mine and she's new to the tribe. And I told her, go look at what Bank of America or any bank for that matter is offering on your savings account. And she went and looked and we shared screens and it was 0.01% for savings at Bank of America, I believe it was. Now, with inflation being at 9.1%, that means that your purchasing power is being eroded faster than you're able to earn interest, right? So I typically tell people that if you're going to save using a traditional bank account, you might as well go to Las Vegas and party like a rock star because your purchasing power is being eroded. Why save money? if the purchasing power is being eroded. So in order to be able to beat inflation, you have to use leverage. And real estate is one of the finest tools that I've found so far that allows me to beat inflation. I completely agree, 100%. Leverage is a powerful tool when used correctly. And the big financial systems and banks use it all the time when we put our money into their banking systems. So. I want to segue a little bit into your background. Can you give our listeners more depth and insight on your story of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I can go back to growing up in Jersey City, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a family of six with a single mother. Right. And I have, you know, five siblings. And I always tell people that. We were so poor that we didn't even have a spoon and I had to steal a spoon from McDonald's. So I had a plastic spoon at best is how I came up. But I started watching, you know, I'm going to age myself just a little bit, but I started watching Carlton Sheets in probably 98, 97, right? I've been watching Carlton Sheets. I'm going to age myself now and I've been watching Carlton Sheets since the 80s. And Carlton Sheets used to say you can go out and buy 
real estate, no money down. Well, you know, I was born in 92, right? Were you born in 92? <laughs> Shucks. I didn't know you were so young. Dude, you're aging me. I was born in 73. So I was watching Carlton Sheets when I was growing up and he used to come out on those infomercials after midnight. And I don't know why I was up, but I said, hey, if you can buy real estate with no money down, then that's the way to go. And um, probably in 1998, when I graduated college, I was in Seattle, Washington, working for a consulting gig. And I got hooked up with this um, guy at Edward Jones. And at Edward Jones, because I was probably making about, you know, $70,000, $80,000 at the time, he told me being single, the best thing that I could do was probably buy a house and be able to, you know, reduce my taxes with the mortgage, et cetera. So I went and bought a house when I returned to Virginia in the 2000, not years when you were probably eight years old. And uh, at that time, real estate was just blowing up, right? And I purchased my first house for about $112,000. And in 2005, I sold that first house for nearly 400000 And that was a godsend to me because selling that first house allowed for me not only to pay off my student loans. I went to a private university in New Jersey, but it allowed me to pay off my student loans. But in addition to paying off my student loans, it allowed for me to make my first investment, which I did in Wilmington, Delaware. 2005, 2008, I crashed and burned with everybody else. But the good thing for me is I was able to get out of the country for five years. I went to Africa for two and a half years, went to Singapore for about a year and a half and landed up on my last project in Seattle. So I was basically able to save a significant amount of money living on per diem for about five years. And, and that really worked out very well for me and my family. And that's when in 2014, we got back and we came back and now I'm married with a little kid. And uh, at that point in time, we started doing flips, right? We took a boot camp class over here in Northern Virginia and we started doing flips. And after doing flips, we did several different flips and, you know, averaged about forty, fifty thousand $50,000 per flip. We started to say, well, we could do more of this. So my wife went out and got her realtor's license. But at that same point of doing flips, I was paying a lot of money to Uncle Sam because I had a high income job. And at the same time, I had all of this income coming in from these flips. And literally at the end of the year, I was writing Uncle Sam a five, six digit check. And I said that there's no way to go. So I then started looking for a multifamily complex here in either D.C. and Northern Virginia. And the price per door was still at that point in time, $200,000 a door right now. And it's trading at about $250,000, $300,000 a door. So I couldn't buy it all on my own. And that's when I learned about syndications. And since 2017, right now, today, I'm working on my 25th deal where you know I invested in 20 different syndications as an LP. And the last five deals that I've worked on, I've been able to gain access to the GP side. So basically, that's my journey as to how I got to real estate and what I'm doing today. Pretty cool. Like you, I started off flipping too and quickly realized that I was giving a lot of money to Uncle Sam, like you said, from a tax perspective. And I realized that Rental property income is really where you create 
wealth over the long term. And one of the best ways that people are able to gain wealth is by lowering their taxable liability. And rental income is a perfect way to do that. But I imagine throughout your journey to getting where you are today, even like you mentioned, investing in 20 passive syndications, you were able to put together a great process that allowed you to transition as an active investor. But on the passive investor side, like walk me through that process of evaluating different operators. I'm sure that you have maybe one or two metrics that you look at in someone's underwriting that you have developed over time. Walk me through one to two metrics maybe that you look at, or if someone is interested in passively investing in a commercial real estate opportunity, one or two things that they should look at when looking at an operator's underwriting. Well, the first thing that I would do is in my investment criteria, this is just the Lee Johnson Value Investment Partners criteria that we're using for all deals that we are putting money to work in, is it has to have a preferred return, right? I like to have a preferred return of a floor at 6.5%, but if it has a preferred return higher than that, I'm not going to walk away from the deal. But I could tell you the first time I invested in a syndication, Literally, I had transferred my 401ks from these past employers into a self-directed IRA, and I was going to invest $100,000 into this first deal. I met Christine at the Pandora over here in Reston. No, it was in Herndon. And we sat and we talked for a little bit, and I literally gave her my check, and I pulled it back from her several different times because in my life, I had never really given anyone $100,000. And there was that fear there. At that point in time, I knew how to underwrite, but I still didn't know how to underwrite. But since that time, my wife and I have become pros at underwriting deals. So to circle this question, we first always look for a preferred return, the preferred return tells us that the LP investors are going to get paid before the GP team gets paid. And second to that, you know, we use debt service coverage ratio, DSCR, as one of the levers that we use. We use cash on cash as one of the levers that we use. We use so many different metrics to help us judge whether that opportunity is going to perform because, you know, following several different operators. I get a number of deals and I have to choose which ones I'm going to invest in and which ones I'm going to pass on. That's a great story. I completely agree from a perspective of as a passive investor, it's great to have that preferred return structure. And that's a similar structure that we offer to our investors as well within the deals that we have done, because it kind of gives your investor more padding, more surety to some respect, obviously, all investments don't guarantee a return, but you know, None. from having a preferred return perspective, from giving that to your investors, that gives them comfort that they know that the sponsor is aligned, right? They get paid out first before the sponsor sees any promote profits or any returns uh, from a GP perspective. And I think one of the things that you likely have been able to develop again is, you know, a list of systems of how you screen operators. Do you have anything 
in depth of, you know, from an operational perspective, like what you look at from an operator's, uh, maybe their background or what do you look at from their experience? Like give our listeners some context on how you were able to develop a, maybe a process or develop some systems to where you can decide if that person is the one you need to be investing with. Well, the first and foremost thing that you have is reputation, right? And within side of this space, right now, I have invested probably with seven to 10 different operators uh, since 2017, right? So that allowed me to get a feel for what different operators are doing. Now, every operator is going to be doing business as an LLC. Don't look for the LLC that's going to hold the asset. You have to understand the LLC that that company is performing business under, right? So what you can do is you can go to the State Corporation Commission and pull a certificate of good standing to make sure that that is there. But also you would leverage Google to search on that operator's name as well as that operator company's name to determine whether or not if they have any negative reviews out there. Of course, no one is going to have a perfect profile when it comes to anything being on the internet. However, you know, there's going to be good and there's going to be bad and there's going to be ugly that is there at the same time. But moreover than anything else, I believe looking at their performance record and what others are saying in the space about them, you can leverage even bigger pockets to determine whether or not if people are saying good things or bad things about certain operators at the same time. So Google is probably going to be your best friend to do a name search for that individual. You could also check the SEC to make sure that, you know, there are no bad boy clauses that are out there. But even if a person has been violated where they now are restricted by the bad boy clause, the Internet is going to tell you that because these filings, although, you know, most of my deals I'm doing are 506Bs, all of that has to be recorded. And many people don't know, but there is an, a Securities and Exchange Commission at the federal level. And there's another deal at the state level. Each state has its own securities office, securities commission. And you can do all of these searches on that person and that individual. One of the things that people may not know is that any um, securities that are out there, if a person has received a bad boy clause, they are not allowed for, I think it's seven to 10 years to be able to create any private syndications or securities at that point in time. And those are the things that you're going to be looking for as you're vetting your operator. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is looking at the offering memorandum, but definitely looking at the private placement memorandum to make sure that what they have said inside of the OM is actually inside of the PPM and the PPM or private placement memorandum is the document that gets shared with the SEC. And if they're lying on that document, they can lie inside of their OM or offering memorandum, but they cannot lie inside of the PPM. Otherwise they risk 
having to wear a jumpsuit, an orange jumpsuit for that matter, for several years. And that's not where people want to be. I don't think anyone gets into this game because they're trying to become incarcerated. So definitely you have to have a thorough scrub of the PPM to make sure that everything that they're saying inside of the OM is things that they're saying and holding true to inside of the PPM. Those are really good tips there. I think in the world of social media and this fast paced environment, mm-hmm. people in, you know, specifically my generation too, right? We grew up in the internet age and everything is on the computer and you have things like Robin Hood and it's the ability to make investments quickly. I think in today's environment mm-hmm. causes people to lack on the due diligence side. And when you live in a world where it's, it's social media and it's easy to think that one person is widely successful and in a world where people don't usually talk about things that go bad or things that go wrong and their flaws, it's easy to just take it at at face value. But the ones like yourself who are able to perform the adequate due diligence and peel the curtain a little bit more deeper to figure out exactly who you're investing with are the ones who are able to position themselves strategically and play in defense mode against loss of capital because you're working extremely hard to earn a living and build your capital up to go out and invest and defend against inflation like we talked about earlier on. But when you're able to have that system and that process to allow you to protect yourself from loss of capital, it's a great way to position yourself for success in the world of real estate investing. Well, can I sum up what you just said? To me, there is an old statement that says a fool and his money is soon parted. I don't know where that came from, but one of the things that I know with the SEC is they are there to protect investors, right? So there's a difference between an accredited investor, and there's a certain criteria that they must have, like an accredited investor as a single individual has earned $200,000 a year uh, for the past two years, or as a married couple having earned $300,000 over the last two years, or they have a net worth that exceeds $1 million, not to include their primary residence. Those are just probably two of seven criteria that a person can meet in order to be declared as accredited. Now, when it comes to non-accredited, those are people who don't meet the criteria for accreditation. And if they are going to invest in a 506B deal, there are only 35 slots for those individuals. But if they're investing in a 506C deal, you have to be accredited. And not only must you be accredited, but you must be validated by a third party. So, you know, not everyone can invest in in these types of deals at the same time. And the SEC is there to act as more of a guardrail because there are some unscrupulous people who will take your money and do whatever they want to do with it versus what you want them to do with it. Totally agree. And the SEC's job is really to, like you said, be a security guard and protect 
consumers from investing with people who really aren't going to be a fiduciary of their capital. But I always like to tell people this, you know, you are the biggest fiduciary of your own money because you know exactly how hard you've worked for it. And so really it's up to you as an investor to protect your capital, even though you might be trusting in someone else to be a fiduciary, but you know, your job is to do whatever it takes to protect from loss of capital. Oh yeah. I read a book a long time ago. This was when I wanted to be a day trader. And this was probably between 2000 and 2005. I had probably four or five different monitors on my screen and I was doing day trading, right? Candlesticks and technical analysis, et cetera, so that I can try to win in the stock market. But one of the things that I learned is that investing in the stock market takes up a tremendous amount of time. You got to do a lot of homework to invest in a company. So the book that I read was Trading for a Living. The book Trading for a Living teaches you about technical analysis. But one of the things that they taught me in that book was that preservation of capital is tantamount to anything, right? Because if you lose your principal, right, if you lose your principal, you are out of the game. You can only play from the sidelines. Yeah, it's good to go and watch the game, but sidelines aren't going to give you the net worth that you need to live your life of freedom and independence. And that's what I'm teaching all of the people who are within my circle is that, hey, why don't you trade seven to 10 years, right, versus the 30 to 40 that everyone is preaching to from grade school. Tom Wilwright has taught me that if you invest significantly for seven to 10 years, you can grow your net worth to the point where it covers your annual expenses with a four to 5% yield. And that's what I have done. That's what I teach others to do. And I think it just makes sense to trade seven to 10 years over the 30 to 40 that people are telling you, go get your college education. When you graduate from college, go and get you a good job, work that good job until you're 59 and a half or 62, and you can apply for retirement from Social Security. Much less, Yannick, when you retire or when you get to retirement age, the chances that Social Security will be there in the state that we are expecting it to be there today, probably we will be long gone. And I think at this stage, the Social Security Trust is probably going to be insolvent by 2035, 2040. So right now, we probably have hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans who are reaching retirement age at this point in time and they're drawing off of Social Security. More is coming out of Social Security than is actually going in. And I don't believe that Social Security is going to be there for me when I'm at, you know, 62, 65. And I think that they're even thinking about raising Social Security to 71 in order to secure it just a little bit more. So at the end of the day, long story is bet on yourself. Don't have your hand out waiting for Social Security, I get it that you've they've taken enough money out of your check. 
right? But hey, I want to have a retirement of abundance. I want to have a lifestyle that I enjoy. I can travel the world. I have my day back to myself. And when I get my network to the point where I can walk away, I'm definitely going to be walking away. I have a wonderful job. I enjoy what I do. It's just that I can definitely find other things that I would do better or more of if I have 40 hours back. You and I share the same viewpoint on a long-term perspective. I 100% agree. Social security is likely going to be insolvent, possibly. I mean, we're seeing the news articles. We're seeing uh, the literature out there that's saying um, that they're running out of money. And when you print trillions of dollars and you pump the financial system and weaken the dollar to some point and cause inflation. And obviously, you know, there's pandemic issues and things that factor into that. But the point is that investing in real estate is a great way to have control over your outcome. And by doing that, you take back some of the things that you are giving to the government if you are just investing in traditional assets, right? Or if you're just banking on social security to take care of you in the future. And I completely agree 100% with what you're saying or what you said with regards to cutting down that time that our parents took 30 to 40 years to work extremely hard and then wait for Social Security as opposed to doing something today that might be 10 years like you mentioned, but the effects and the control is exponential compared to if you were just to rely on the government. So that is just my personal opinion, but I think there there has some, it has some validity to what I'm saying. But in terms of someone that is trying to invest passively in real estate, and they may have some of those financial instruments right now, 401k and IRA, uh, or maybe even insurance, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with how someone can leverage you know, 401k or self-directed IRA to invest into real estate? No, and, and I'm happy to. I don't know if you saw the smile come onto my face when you transitioned the conversation into investing via your retirement accounts, but there are two ways that I have learned to do this. The first way is let's say very few people in this day and age will work from college graduation to retirement for one company. Let's understand that and set that as the baseline. And since very few people will probably work for one company, they should invest, in my opinion, in their 401k, right? Because the company is going to typically match that money. Plus also it reduces your taxable income for that year. So what I say for those individuals who are working at jobs for three, four, five years, well, even one year is not to leave that 401k money with that past employer, whether that's going to be Fidelity, T. Rowe Price or Vanguard, I would say to them, for them to move those assets into a self-directed IRA or an EQRP plan. E stands for enhanced, 
The Q is qualified. R, retirement. P is planned. My friend at, named Parker, he actually shared the EQRP book from uh, Damien Lippo uh, with me, which basically gave me an insight into the differences between a self-directed IRA and an EQRP plan. An EQRP plan is a retirement plan. And the difference between the self-directed IRA and the EQRP is the fact that with the retirement plan, you can take out a loan similar to what you have with your 401k up to $50,000, up to 50% or $50,000, whichever one is greater. So if you need to have and use and leverage your qualified retirement plan for loaning purposes, I would say that you can do that. But in my situation, I've always had uh, high income opportunities. And what I did is I took all of those past 401ks and I probably have had 10 or 15 jobs over my career since graduation in 98. And what I did is I moved all of those monies into a self-directed IRA. And in particular, I have a self-directed IRA with checkbook access. What that does is it allows for me to basically wire money to any investment that I have done my due diligence on when I'm ready. There are other self-directed IRAs where the custodian will do the vetting of the opportunity for you. And if it passes the qualifications or the requisites to move into that investment, they will then cut the check for you. To me, that delays time. I always say to people, if you trust yourself, go with the plan for checkbook control. If you kind of sort of don't trust yourself so much, you can go with a custodian who's going to do the vetting for you. So that's how I have leveraged my retirement funds, right, to invest in real estate today. You also mentioned the infinite banking option that is there. I would call it an option that is there because you can leverage whole life insurance policies where you are using the cash value component. Every whole life insurance policy has two components. One is the death benefit. It's insurance. It's going to pay when you die, right? And your beneficiaries don't have to worry about any tax consequences upon your death. They get to have that money tax-free. However, there is the cash value component of the life insurance policy, which you can take loans out against, right? And those loans, depending upon how the uh, policy has been structured, right? There's something called direct recognition and non-direct recognition, but you can take a loan from yourself, from that policy, because the insurance companies, right? will allow the policy holders to have access to the resources before they put those out for investment. So what you do is you take out a loan against the cash value component of the policy, and then you can leverage that loan to invest in a multifamily syndication. The one thing that you have to have there is an arbitrage between what you're paying an interest back to the policy and the preferred return that you're getting 
from the syndication. So for instance, if the syndication is paying out an 8% preferred return and the loan that you've taken from the insurance policy is at 5%, that means that you have an arbitrage of 3%, right? And it works in your favor to leverage that policy in order to make an investment in a real estate opportunity. You would never take out a loan for 6% and only get 5% back from the investment. So that doesn't make any sense. So always you have to have a positive arbitrage in your favor. But I have come to learn that leveraging these insurance policies are the best way to go. And right now, my family, we have four different life insurance policies. My wife just recently got licensed in order to be able to do this. And we're probably going to be at five policies, six policies over the next one to two years. And what I'm doing with those policies is I'm not going to create a college fund for my children. What I have done is I have gotten them insurance policies and those insurance policies, by the time that they're ready for college, they will have had two policies at that point in time. And we will leverage those policies to pay for their schooling at that time. But also, and the kicker here is that since life insurance policies are based off of actuarial tables, it's very inexpensive to get life insurance policy on a child than it is for an old stogie like me. So I tell people when a child is born into your family, the very first thing that you should do rather than getting that child a gift is to go out and get that child an insurance policy because it's going to be the cheapest that you'll ever have it. Every day you get older, a life insurance policy is going to cost you more. So why not go and get that brand new baby, a life insurance policy? That should be the way that they go. And last piece of that is when you go for college and you have to fill out your FAFSA, they don't ask you about your insurance policies that you have available to you. They don't see it as an asset. So it's not going to count in your qualification for your student loans if you have to take out all your financial aid as well. So there's just a couple of different things that you have that are working inside of your favor if you were to go with these life insurance policies, right? So what we're looking here is we're looking to minimize our tax obligation and setting up a proper insurance policy is the way to go. And you have to work with a professional who's been educated on how to do this, because if you go to any just Joe Blow insurance broker, he's going to sell you something that favors him or her versus something that's going to be favoring you. I hope I answered the question. I mean, you gave a lot of great nuggets just now to anyone that's trying to invest passively using retirement accounts or different level, which is the infinite banking concept. I personally just got my first cash value life insurance policy a few months ago, and I'm seeing the benefits that you're saying right now. And I 100% agree. You know, my parents got a policy when I was younger, but the problem was that it did not grow as much from a cash value perspective. And being able to know that on the forefront, you know, before you have children or 
if you're able to set that up for your kids in the future, I mean, that's what we're here for. That's all about creating generational wealth and using some of the same strategies that the wealthy people use to pass things down from generation to generation to come. And it's a great way to build that generational wealth and also invest in products that are lucrative and have that arbitrage, like you said, to put them to work instead of just putting that into the bank. Oh, yeah. The bank is a thief. And, you know, if anybody has ever explored the fractional reserve policies that the Federal Reserve have and banks have, for every one dollar that the bank has in deposits, it can usually loan out up to nine times that, sometimes 10 times that. Many people may not remember 2008 when Lehman Brothers collapsed and had to file for bankruptcy, they were levered at 40X. 40X, that should have been unconscionable, but they were able to get away with it for a long enough time. And 2008 came along and basically ran them into a bankruptcy. But that's the reason why I believe in the privatized banking system is that if you have a finance in need, right? If you need to finance a vehicle or anything of that sort, why not become your own bank? Why have to go to a banking institution and basically write down everything about your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, and then have to, you know, bite your fingernails to determine whether or not if you're going to be approved or not. I say it's much better to take a long-term approach, five to seven years to fund your policy, right? To be in a position where every time you need financing, every time you need financing, why not go to your own bank where you approve the loan and you determine what the terms for repayment are going to be and the schedule? It just makes perfect sense for me to instruct people and help people to understand how to do this. Because remember, I'm the kid with the plastic spoon in his mouth. I didn't have a silver spoon. So if I am able to grow my net worth to the point where literally I'm years away from retirement and retirement is how you define it, similar to happiness, right? I'm not going to retire to the point where I'm just going to sit on the couch and become a fat man. No, I'm going to, you know, spend time with my children. I may even learn how to play golf, right? Right now, and I messed up my left shoulder trying to play golf, but I will have my time, my freedom to do as I please with my day every day. And if people can buy into that model, then I think it's going to work for everyone. And literally, we'll have more happy Americans because they control their destiny. Well said. A lot of people wake up every single day hating what they do, and they feel like you know they don't have the control over their lives because of whatever forces that might be. But if you're able to find a way to put yourself in a position to control your time and maybe utilize some of the strategies that you talked about from an insurance perspective, at least, 
Man, it's a really a great way to set yourself up for the future. The secret that I want to share with you is don't look to get new debt. Try to do assumptions that still have IO or very low interest rates uh, remaining. So that's the deal that we're currently working on. Yeah. You know, right now where interest rates are in the fives and the sixes, we have a deal where we're going to be able to get it at 3.5, and there's 7.5 years of interest only on the deal. So I would say right now in this environment, it's better to go and find deals that need to trans trade, but have a significant IO period left on them so that you can weather yourself through the storm and still be able to win. So that's what we're looking at right now is deals that at least have a, you know, three to five years of IO remaining on them. And those are the ones to, to take down. Yeah, I totally agree. We're doing the same. And I think right now more than ever is the perfect time to pull out your creative financing toolbox and do a lot of creative financing stuff. Like you said, assumable debt, seller financing, things that you're able to get in at a favorable debt perspective. So I completely understand and, and I completely agree 100%. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank earning 0% return and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash Passive Guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N Acquisitions.com slash Passive Guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. So you've been in this real estate journey for quite some time now, experience as a passive investor, active investor. You know, if you had to start this marathon all over again, what would you do differently that would contribute to your success? Well, I tell people, if I had to start my journey over, how would I start my journey over? I would start my journey over by first buying a quadplex. And what is a quadplex? A quadplex is something that qualifies for residential financing right? But has four apartments in that structure. And what I would do, you know, if I was a 20 X year old person is I would live in one, right? Because in order to qualify, you know, using VH, VA or FHA, you have to live in a residence and I would rent out the other three, right? And I would basically live for rent free and let my tenants pay down the mortgage. And some people have a debate as to whether or not if buying that first home makes any sense. I disagree with those who say, you don't need a mortgage. Don't worry about that. Take rent, whatever it is that you're renting and use the excess money that you're saving to make investments. I disagree with that model. Why? One, if you are a tenant, which is 
my business, we're always underwriting our pro forma to increase rents by three, four, five percent year over year, right? So when it comes to your expenses, ask yourself, well, what is your largest expense? In most instances, your largest expense is going to be housing. So by just going and getting a property that I own, I lock in my largest expense and no longer have that variability in my life. So I would say first thing to my 20 something year old self is I would buy not a single family or a townhouse. I would buy at least a duplex, but I would definitely go for a quadplex. I would live in that puppy for three, five to 10 years. I would then take out the equity and I would go invest it in different real estate investments because I don't believe in sitting on equity. There is absolutely no reason for anyone to ever sit on equity because money should be working every single day. So if I had to start all over, the advice that I would give myself is go purchase the home that I'm living in, grow the equity, leverage that equity to move into other investments, grow my wealth. Good advice. That is something that I exactly did when I knew that I wanted to be a full-time investor in the future was I bought a duplex and I still own that property today. It cash flows well over $1,000 per month for me. But to your point, the biggest cost for someone's personal expenses is likely your housing costs. If you're able to control that cost and have a set fixed amount, now you're going to see some increases from a taxes insurance perspective. But the point is that on your way to wealth, you want to get your expenses as controllable as possible. And when you're renting, you don't necessarily have that control to keep your expenses down. And it's just one of the simple strategies that you can do to create generational wealth, like you said, but then also uh, control your expenses and own your own home and control your own destiny. Yeah, I have friends because I grew up in New Jersey, right? And I have a good friend who's probably been renting for 15 years. One apartment, same 15 years. I asked myself, I'm sure that his landlord has increased his rent multiple times. And at the end of that 10 years, let's call it 10 years, what is there to show for it? Absolutely nothing. You have no equity, right? You have nothing to show for it. Literally right now, I have so much equity that I'm leveraging in my primary residence that that is how I am growing my wealth. I don't believe that there should ever be a day when my money isn't receiving some type of compounding effect due to interest. If I have money that's just sitting in an account, shame on me. So I've put together what I'm calling the VIP wealth system that teaches others how to make sure that their wealth is growing every single day. And Yannick, a lot of people don't really understand the power of compound interest. But 
there is a Google search that's out there that shows the individual if they were to double a penny every day for 30 days, that at the end of that 30 days, a penny that doubles every day for 30 days results in just over $5 million. Those are the wealth strategies that have been used by the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, et cetera. They understand the power of compound growth and they have leveraged those same tools for centuries. And if you are on the wrong side of the debt equation, there's a reason why you are there. However, I can tell people that you can get on the other side of that wealth equation and grow and have something that you pass along generationally. And last bit is I want my heirs to put a a picture of me above their fireplace. There's two dreams that I have, and I talk to my business partner about this all the time. And the first dream is to have a portrait of me above the fireplace. And every time they come into the house, they say, that's the guy who started all of this. And the second dream that I have is to be in Jet Magazine. You know, I'm showing you my age again, Yannick, but Jet Magazine used to be in all African-American households for many, many years during the term when I was growing up. And I would look at those magazines and I would look at the professionals and see that they had degrees and certain things of that sort. But I also looked at the entrepreneurs and what they did from a business perspective to grow those businesses. And those are my dreams. So I don't know if Jet Magazine is still in print. I should know and be a sponsor of that magazine since I have ambitions to one day be in it. Maybe even Ebony or Emerge as well. But those are the books that I saw on coffee tables when I was growing up and envisioned myself being in one of those magazines at the same time. So I hope that helps those individuals who are listening to your great podcast to learn that their dream circle should be huge. And, you know, when we were in Chicago, I told you, I love your story. You have an amazing story. How many people get to know someone who has been in the NFL and, you know, your story resonates with many others. And if they employ that same strategy, just imagine, you know, the millions of dollars that's being transferred in the NFL And if folks decided that their first contract, they would save it and invest it and they would live that lavish life on that second contract, how much of an impact could they have on changing the world? Not only that, but rather than being on the field, they can be in the owner's boxes and owning multiple franchises at the same time. It's a dream that needs to be imagined And not only is it a dream that needs to be imagined, it's a dream that needs to be realized. When you think about it, we shouldn't be asking to be head coaches in the NFL. We should be asking, well, why aren't all of those players owners? Yeah, totally, man. I 100% agree. I think right now with the access to information, it's a great time for a lot of professional athletes to take that step up, 
compared to where they were historically. And they leverage some of the things that you mentioned in today's show, even about compound interest. I think things are going to change around for the foreseeable future in a more positive light. So Lee, tell our listeners how they can follow you, learn more about you and your company and potential investment opportunities that you have on the horizon. Well, you know, I'm old school. Our phone number is 571-444-8474. And I'll repeat that, 571-444-8474. But, you know, I really only travel on one social media platform, and that social media platform is LinkedIn. And I'm Passive REI Pros. That Well, Passive REI Pros. And our website is always there, www.valueinvestmentpartners.com, because we're always looking for value. And we were or are still investors first. So what we do is we teach others how to invest in similar fashion to what we did to grow our net worth. Should I give my email address to Lee at valueinvestmentpartners.com? But who uses snail mail or, or email anymore? Everybody's on social media. <laughs> I'm happy that uh, they can contact you and, and follow you and your success in the future and deals that you guys have in the pipeline. So thank you for being on a, a guest on our show today. We dove into retirement plans, utilizing insurance products to grow generational wealth and put your kids in the best situation for their future. Your process from passive to active investor, things that you look for in different sponsors. So thanks again for being on our show. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. Let's take action. Be great today. And remember that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. Run your own race. Thanks again, Lee. Run your own race. I'm making a t-shirt, Yannick, so you can't steal it. Run your own race, but at your pace, right? Because social media has it where a lot of people show a lot of image of they're doing this, that, and the other, right? And if you follow social media, you know, we're human beings and we have emotions and sometimes jealousy can kick in. But what I tell people is that your toughest competition is you, right? You should be your greatest competition. And yes, there will always be individuals who have more than you, but all you have to do is look around and you will see individuals who have less than yourself. So run your race, but at your pace. And brother, I'm extremely blessed and thank you for the opportunity and privilege to share your platform with you. You know, I think very highly of you. And uh, it, it was a pleasure to be here today. Thanks so much for your your education and your knowledge with sharing with us today and our listeners in this tremendous amount of value. So thanks again for being on the show and we'll see you soon. Thank you, sir.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.